0: This week, it's a double dose of one of our favorite filmmakers, David Lynch, We decided to take a look at his two most recent features and look back on his oeuvre and see what we can determine, starting with Mulholland Drive and moving on to the three-hour epic of sorts, Inland Empire.
1: We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening
2: good evening i hope you'll excuse me if i appear a trifle excited we're only interested in one thing can you tell a story
3: Bob? can you make us laugh can you make us cry can you make us want to break out enjoy your all
2: we move fast can you take it no matter what you do now you're still part of everything that's happening used to be in silent pictures used to be big
3: i am big it's the picture that got small. We need more heart in motion pictures. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. Mm-hmm. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell him! I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Are you listening? The Boulevard of Broken Tree.
2: We're making another movie. This is the one I'll
0: be remembering for. Hey, you're listening to Sound on Sight. Uh, My name is Simon Howell. I'm the content editor over at soundonsight.org. I'm joined by Mr. Ricky D., editor-in-chief. Good day, everybody. And uh, we're also joined, of course, by new regular co-host
4: Edgar Chaput. Hi, everybody. How's it going?
0: And we're also, also joined by friend of the show, longtime long time uh, ally, I guess, uh, <laughs> Kate Rennebaum. Hello. Is she an ally or is
4: she a foe pretending to be an ally? <laughs> hey, if, you're part of, if you're part of the Sound On Site team, you're definitely an ally. But it's hard to know
0: what these Harvard types we, we like to
1: bring guests on the show, and usually we try to bring in filmmakers or podcasters, but every once in a while we bring in a good friend. And I do believe, Kate, you pitched the idea to do a David Lynch show almost two years ago. It took us almost two years to finally get the show done. And uh, now you're not even living in Montreal. You, like, moved on to bigger and better things. Well, can you tell us a bit about what you're doing right now?
5: Uh, I'm doing my PhD in film studies at Harvard in Boston.
4: What? It's very impressive.
5: Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Uh, although the downside is, is that there are no good video stores here, and I really miss the video store in Montreal.
1: <laughs> well, the, uh, except for the video store in Montreal has now shut down, and therefore we have no more good video stores in Montreal. So I don't really know where to go to rent movies at we've,
0: this we've point. We've got plenty in Toronto, though, so I guess that's the one advantage we do have. Okay. I think in, in
4: Montreal, there's still something called La Boite Noire, uh, which has an okay selection. If you want to rent, I think that's an okay selection. There's one on uh, Mont-Royal. Except, I really do not like La Boite
1: Noire. I don't like. I do not like the attitude of the people that work there. I uh, don't like their prices. I don't like the fact that you have to open up a membership and pay a yearly rate, if not a monthly rate. Um, yeah. So, but in any case, so welcome to the show, Kate. Uh, it's not the first time you've
0: been on our show. I think you also discussed
1: Terrence Malick a while back.
5: No, uh, uh, did we, uh... We, I, mean, I, had, I had
0: Kate on right. for our Telluride show two yes. years ago.
5: Yeah.
1: Oh, okay. Well, your husband, Olivier, was on our show. Uh, we discussed uh, Malik with him, and also we did a Claire Denis uh, uh, retrospective, I believe.
5: We did. He's here in the background. He may shout out things about Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire as well. You never know.
0: <laughs> Excellent. And also, since... Kate, since you're at Harvard, everything you say if it contradicts anything we say, it immediately invalidates any of our arguments.
5: Holy mm-hmm. man, that's an impressive uh, thing that's a good, to be... That's a good card to pull, so...
1: <laughs> Sounds about right to me. Well, right. the, the reason why we brought Kate along is because uh, I never went to film school. Well, Simon, you went to film school, actually.
0: Yes, but not Harvard film school.
1: Well, i never been to a film school, so... <laughs>
0: I'm just going to... I'm just going gonna, gonna to pull the card as often as possible to embarrass Kate, basically.
4: All right. But you <laughs> okay. know... Film I, I, studies wasn't a prerequisite to be on the show, because uh, I'm out of here in that case. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. I'm really nervous about this show. Good, you should be. This is
0: a daunting one.
1: No, but th- this is weird because we've been trying to do a David Lynch show for like about two years, and I finally decided to get the show like scheduled in. Like I scheduled the show in after Kate sent me a, a, a tweet, and I was like, okay, we're going to record the show on Sunday. And two days later, Mr. David Lynch starts following me on Twitter.
0: And <laughs> Spooky. I,
1: I have not been able to sleep ever since he followed me on Twitter because I'm so – I don't even want to post anything on Twitter at this point. I'm so – seriously, it's haunting me. I couldn't sleep last night. I'm like, I'm afraid anything I post on Twitter, he's just going to, I don't know,
4: <laughs> get pissed off or angry at me or <laughs> – I don't know how much stock should be put into this, but I have heard that he's quite a a swell fellow. As as bizarre and as incomprehensible as his films might be at sometimes, I I heard he's a pretty cool guy. I'm sure he's an
1: amazing person, but the point is he's following on Twitter. He's following 36 people. I'm one of 36 people. Why? If David Lynch is listening, I'm giving him an open invite to come on our show and discuss movies and film and whatever else he wants to talk about. We could talk about Louie and uh his music
0: yeah has anyone but me seen his appearances on louis
5: i have i have
0: weren't those great
5: they were i can't remember if i saw it all the way through to the end of that arc i definitely saw the first one where he's directing him on the uh on the the talk show
0: there's another one after that um, okay and yeah it's also great anyway if if you're a fan of of david lynch you should definitely watch last season of louis because he's on actually two episodes and he's if great. you
5: have a brain you should watch the last season of louis
0: yes that too <laughs> we're we're getting off topic so let's uh since we've got <laughs> so much so to talk fun. about let's uh let's just go r- right into a clip from Mulholland Drive oh yeah. she's very
5: pretty mm. 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 may i offer you gentlemen anything espresso
2: nothing uh what's the photo for one espresso
5: no that's it I think you're going to enjoy your espresso this time. I've done quite a bit of research, knowing how hard you are to please.
2: This one comes highly recommended. What's the photo for? It's a recommendation.
3: A recommendation to you, Adam. It's not a recommendation.
2: This is the girl. What girl? For what? What is this, Ray? Uh, we'd be happy to put her on the list for considerations. Uh, You'd be pleased to know that there's quite a bit of interest in this role. Interest? Hmm. There's six of the top actresses that want this thing. This is the girl. Right, take care of this. Hold on. Hold on, Adam. Hold on? There's no way! There's no way! It's not longer your film.
0: That was a clip from David Lynch's Mulholland D.R period. And I guess I want to start with that, just to be a dick. Um, because it's, you know, obviously we call it Mulholland Drive, the movie is known as Mulholland Drive, but as some have commented, you could just as easily interpret the title as Mulholland Dream. Ah. ah. Uh, go, maybe. So, <laughs> I just wanted to throw that out there as a gotcha moment. So, uh, so Kate, you, you're going to Harvard. Uh, <laughs> what... Maybe you can, I'm now relying on you to provide the definitive interpretation of every plot point of Mulholland Drive, go.
5: I'm way better at interpreting plot points for Inland Empire, I really am. I've seen Inland Empire many, many times, so I could probably give more of a a solid opinion on that film. Mulholland Drive, to this day, I still, I don't know, I subscribe to the idea that there really isn't a definitive interpretation of this movie, which maybe isn't such a sexy answer, but (laughs) there are... I can definitely throw some interesting ideas into the mix, I would think. But, uh, for example, when you were mentioning the title as Mahal in Dream, I was rewatching the beginning of the film right before this. And one thing that occurred to me that I had never noticed about the first half of that film is that uh, the Rita character, Laura Elena Herring, When she enters the film, every time she goes to sleep over the first sort of 10 scenes is when you cut to another storyline in the film. So when you first see her and she falls asleep under the table in the house, that's when you get the first um, cut to uh, the, the mobster characters. And then when she falls asleep again is when you get the next cut to the Adam character, the director character. And so that happens throughout the film. So I'm, I don't know. That was one thing I picked up this most recent time was the question of whether or not Rita is the dreamer, as opposed to the more common interpretation that Betty is the dreamer. But that's one thing.
1: Right. Yeah. But you also got to remember that the first dream sequence comes right at the start of uh, the film. There's the pillow sequence right before the credits roll, which is actually, if you look at the 10 clues that David Lynch laid out for his DVD release, the first clue is there is a specific clue right Prior to the credit sequence.
0: Right. Well, the thing that always gets me about Mulholland Drive is that A, Lynch insists that it tells a coherent story, and B, he absolutely will not tell you what it is.
1: Yes, but you know what though? I think Mulholland Drive may be his most conventional, coherent of all of the quote unquote hard movies that David Lynch has directed. And when I say hard films, I'm specifically talking about Eraserhead, uh, Blue Velvet, Twin Peaks, Spire Walk with Me, Wild at Heart. Lost Highway, and Inland Empire. I think all the themes that cycle through his films are all present here. The strange figures pulling the strings behind the scenes, the uh, interpretations of dream sequences and fantasy and reality blending into the world of cinema, random acts of violence, bizarre character flirtations and sexual situations. Um, I don't know, the, the feeling that the surreal is an active part of everyday life. And I feel like every single one of um, these films, um, well, specifically Blue Velvet, Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive, and Inland Empire, and Twin Peaks, the series and the movie, I feel they are like twisted fairy tales, but I also think that they all exist within the same universe. And I wouldn't be surprised if you can link various characters throughout each film. Like, I do believe that some characters do reappear in the next and or previous film. We should also mention that this was supposed to be uh, pilot for an ABC TV series. Essentially, uh, it was supposed to be a spin-off show to Twin Peaks, if not the season, uh, the third season of Twin Peaks, and the way it was supposed to work was it was supposed to take place right after the end of the very, very last shot of Twin Peaks Season 2, which I won't talk about for anyone who hasn't seen it, but um, there is a character who does die in an explosion, and this was supposed to be season three in the sense that she actually survives the fire. And what happened was ABC actually approved the script. They had no problem with the script. They had a problem with the running time because the pilot was two hours and 45 minutes long. And, and so uh, David Lynch decided that he would cut away 40 minutes, but then they still weren't happy. I think they basically just wanted like an hour-long pilot. So he got really frustrated, and then he turned to a Studio Canal, which is like a French film company, uh, I believe in France, and uh, they basically gave him the money to make the movie. Going back to how we started a review, there are thousands and thousands of theories as to what this movie is about, but I think at the end of the day it doesn't really matter. I think it's fun to discuss the theories with your friends. And I do believe that Lynch does have a coherent storyline. Like I do think in his head like, you know, there is a beginning, middle and end and he can explain every single thing within the film. But what I love about David Lynch movies is I just love the beauty like, I love how everybody can interpret it a different way. And I love the fact that he won't specifically say what the movie's about because, therefore, those interpretations can live forever as the film can.
0: Right. They're never precisely invalidated or exactly. validated. Um, now, Edgar, you're on record as being possibly the least Lynch fanboyish, fanboy-ish out of us. Uh, what's wrong with you? right?
4: <laughs> Oh, it's a, such a fair question. Uh, yeah, it seems like every week since I've started being a co-host, I feel like I have to preface my reviews with something. Uh, it is true. I, I, I guess I'd say I have a tenuous relationship with uh, with his films. Uh, I would say David and I are not on speaking terms right now uh, after the, the films I've seen. Uh, I guess my I guess my issue with with his films in general, the, the few that I've seen, I haven't seen his entire filmography. Is that I, I frequently get the 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 uh, the impression that he, a bit like Ricky uh, said earlier, uh, he does have a cohesive story to tell. There there is a plan, there there is a script, which uh, supposedly made sense at some point, and yet just I guess just for kicks he decides to. I can almost feel him at times as I watch his movies where he's behind the camera going well this can be weirder. This can be more confusing. And I guess I'm just not the type of film fan who really goes for that. Uh, I mean, I can go for weird films. I love the Fantasia Film Festival and all that stuff. But I find when it comes to David Lynch, he's. Sort of, it's almost like he's saying, I want this to be as bizarre and as offsetting as possible, which doesn't feel very organic.
0: So you feel like there's something contrived about his weirdness? Uh,
4: I guess contrived would be the most apt. You feel free to to disagree with me, but I guess so far as my opinion is concerned, I guess I would say the word contrived. Sure, I'll go with that. Yeah, yeah.
1: I'm not convinced that David Lynch is weird for the sake of being weird. I mean, I mean, the man himself, I mean, he's like a character in his movies. like the strange things he does in everyday life from making like cameo appearances on like a, uh, I don't know, like a TV show like Louie to appearing on like ABC and being like the the weather forecaster or he, he does all kinds of strange things. But I think that the movie, no matter how you interpret it, whether it's a fantasy or dream or who's dreaming what, I think the bottom line is David Lynch, he's, a huge fan of a movie called Sunset Boulevard, one of my favorite films of all time from director Billy Wilder. And I think that basically it all boils down to one thing. This is a movie about the Hollywood dream and how far actors and actresses will go to achieve their dream. And that dream, in reality, for most people, becomes a nightmare because most of those people don't actually succeed as an actor. And even if they do get roles, they never become a star and they never become a good actor or actress because they never had the talent to begin with. And so eventually their careers do go... uh, on a downward spiral, and so the dream is often short lived, even if achieved. And so for me, I look at it as like David Lynch has a love and hate relationship with Hollywood, and I think there's a reason why Mulholland Drive and Inland Empire, are his two last films, because the filmmaker has decided to retire from filmmaking. But it's a film about failure, about dreams, about double crossings, murder, suicide, scandals, cynics, dreamers, shattered egos, love affairs, scandals, and so on and so forth. Everything that haunts the Hollywood industry and has Rita and Betty get into the cab on their way to club silencio a piece of paper is actually visible on a pole and the piece of paper says Hollywood is hell I, I, I think it's just it's just about an actress and her her fears her desires and the fact that she's a failed actress I think it's a cautionary tale uh, you have a, a beautiful young actress who's quite naive when she first arrives in Los Angeles and she seems like a real honest to good person when she arrives. And I'm sure like many people, she has fantasies and she has fantasies to achieve her goals and become famous. And as she says in the film, she's like, you know, I would like to be a movie star, but I would also like to be like a well-known good actress. But I think like you need to balance reality with fantasy. And I, I think it's like a cautionary tale in some respects for actors and actresses, because this, there's a lot of things going on within this film. This is a a movie about a woman living with guilt, about accepting the horrible things that she has done. But I think at the end of the day, it's a cautionary tale. All
0: right. And I, I feel like there is a... Whenever you're talking about Lynch and, you know, sort of what his movies mean, there's always these dueling schools of thought where... Some people, like, especially me, uh, whenever I watch a Lynch film, particularly his most recent stuff, which is his most cryptic, I think, um, my feeling is I just want this to wash over me. Like, I don't want to worry so much about trying to piece together the mystery. Or Because I feel like the moment I start to do that, especially with his last two films, I feel like there's a pattern where I'll start to piece together an interpretation, and then the next scene will invalidate it. Or at least complicate that, where it's like, okay, I know how all that stuff before fits, but I don't know where these little people fit. Uh, for instance, or I don't know why we're back in the Black Lodge, uh, which we basically are uh, for chunks of this movie. Uh, So, so eventually I just, I give up in a pleasurable sort of way.
1: See, but the thing is you don't have to give up. You can enjoy the movie and just understand the overall themes present. You don't necessarily need a traditional narrative where you have to understand where it starts, where it begins and where it ends. A prime example is the monster who appears in the back alley of the diner, uh, the diner called Winkies. Now, we find out later on in the film that Diane has contracted the killing of Rita. Like, she hires a hitman to kill off Rita. And so for me, I read it like, basically, that monster is a representation of her guilt, of, like, the most horrible things that she has done. But the thing about Mulholland Drive, my biggest criticism of the movie, is because it was meant to be an actual TV series, I'm not convinced that David Lynch actually fully, wholeheartedly completes uh, or gives conclusion to every single little character in detail present in the film. I don't think he had enough time, even in two, two and a half hours long, to get it done. And there are characters that appear and never reappear. Uh, For example, the the detectives at the beginning of the movie or the man that enters the coffee shop, the method actor, forget his name. Uh, We do see him again, but I just feel like there there are like loose ends throughout the whole entire film. And I do think that 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 can
5: become frustrating for most people. I mean, it's interesting the question about whether or not characters need to be sort of tied up. I I would, my reaction to that would probably be that 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 works within the larger framework of how he's setting up the structure of the film, which is that there are purposeful kind of things that he puts next to each other that can't align. For example, when um, uh, Betty becomes Diane and she wakes up in the second half of the film and you have that purposeful moment where, The neighbor comes to the door and says, oh, I'm here to get my lamp and my whatever, which, of course, chronologically would imply that this half of the film is coming after what we just saw, which, of course, makes no sense. And we can't like those two things can't conjoin. I think the way that he kind of drops off characters and brings characters back in at weird moments works to have that throughout the film, like the way that things don't conjoin, you can't tie things up together easily. So I, w- I would argue that that's maybe what I think of with the characters disappearing and reappearing. But um, what was I going to say before? I was going to say before, here, you're, when you were talking about the um, actors, uh, the idea that the film is about um, the kind of Hollywood dream and actors and actresses, um, I think that's certainly there in the film. I would maybe even add that I think Lynch is even trying to go a little further than that, which is that Hollywood kind of stands in for maybe general ideas about about life like the idea that that you would eventually be co- achieve some dream and this would be your life this would be reality i think he he argue, he's sort of going beyond that and saying that there isn't there isn't any point that isn't there isn't a fantasy involved in there is no time where you don't have a fantasy that you are relying on to live your life i mean that's a big kind of freudian lacanian thing and he's a big fan of the ideas of the subconscious so I think Lynch is sort of saying that there is always going to be a fantasy underpinning whatever you do. It's not that you might achieve something and then fall. It's that we always have fantasies, which is why, um, sorry, uh, Edgar, maybe as well. Maybe that's why he's sort of so set on, I don't know, this epic amping up of the weirdness. I, like, I, I'm obviously on sort of Simon's side. I don't. I don't think that it's contrived. I think he's very purposely trying to point out that there are always fantasies that we're relying on. There's always something there that is weird that we are accounting for in our fantasies. But anyway.
1: No, but I I totally agree. I mean, look, the man is well-versed in psychology, symbology, and dream interpretation. Uh, Just look at his, like, education, like the universities he went to and what he actually studied. But Mulholland Drive itself, like if you look at the actual title, I mean, Mulholland Drive is a long road with many twists and turns, and it's a road that has a deep, history rooted in hollywood and it's right at the edge of hollywood and i do agree with everything you are saying but with that said i do think he's specifically targeting hollywood not just specifically actors and actresses and the hollywood dream but everything i mean like one of my favorite sequences in the film and you guys i know you're gonna even edgar i know you're gonna agree with me right it's the early sequence and (laughs) it's it's one of my favorite scenes it's the espresso sequence I mean, just the idea that two producers can walk into the room, put a, a photo on the table, and that's the girl. That's who we're casting. And you can't say shit about it, even if you're the director. Because we all know that, that David Lynch has had his like, own personal like you know, troubles with Hollywood producers to the fact where they wouldn't let him have final cut on his films. And clearly, you know, to this day, it still haunts him. Um, but, I mean, even if you also go to another great sequence, which is the audition... Uh, which to me is one of the best sequences I've ever seen in any David Lynch film. Lynch, totally. Lynch cranks up the level of bizarre humor in that sequence, and like it's the dramatic incident and the mystery, and the whole like just the way it all plays out. Like that to me is the heart of the movie. It's the audition sequence. It's the linchpin of Diane's image of herself. I can
3: call them. <laughs> I can call my dad.
2: But you won't. Playing a dangerous game here. If you're trying to blackmail me, it's not gonna work. You know what I want. It's not that difficult.
1: Because in that scene, here's an actress who, like, she wants to be not only a star, but she wants to be uh, a a great actress. You know what I mean? She wants to be known for her talent. Um, And in that sequence, I don't know, it's, it's just pure movie poetry, the way David Lynch holds his camera on the two actors. Like, the camera dollies in, and you just, you know, there's like 20 or so people in the room but you completely forget there's other characters present in the room you're just so focused on those two characters and the performance that Naomi Watts delivers is unbelievable uh, i mean to me that's the heart of the movie cuz i i look at it as if you look if, if you do want to interpret the, the moholland drive has a fantasy and or uh, a dream sequence and or several dreams that to me is how her character views herself in the fantasy. It's like the ultimate fantasy of her. It's like I walk into an audition room and I'm so damn good. I blow everybody away.
0: Yeah. Well, I think also to me, that sequence, you need that sequence because if this is going to be a film about Hollywood and about Hollywood filmmaking and Hollywood myth-making, et cetera, et cetera, you need something that demonstrates the power of the myth. And for her to be that good and to take over that room and to actually hijack the movie itself for five whole minutes or however long that sequence seems to go on, which seems to be endless in a good way. Um, it, it You need her to be you need her to be that good. You need her. You need that scene there to say, this is why the myth is so pervasive. This is this is what it's all about.
1: Well, yeah. and also like the idea that someone can walk into a room like a really talented actress and just snap her fingers. And in one second, she becomes a different person. To the point where everybody believes that person. Like if you even think about like the idea of method acting. And how scary it is to think of method actors. Where like you think of like Daniel Day-Lewis walking around. Always in character of of, um, of his character in There Will Be Blood. Whose name I forget right now. Daniel um, Plainview. Right. I mean that is scary. And the idea that an actor and an actress can slowly go insane. And and not really be able to distinguish between reality and the characters that he or she is playing because, because they're just slowly mentally breaking down because they're just not emotionally satisfied as to where they are in present day. Uh, And specifically not just in career, because in this film, like she is a failed actress, but she also is um, she clearly has a love relationship with Rita, but in reality, that relationship goes nowhere. It goes sour really quick, but I'm not really sure if um... (laughs) this is going to be complicated for me to explain. (laughs) Which is
0: the dream and which
5: is real. Exactly. I mean, the, the assumption that there even is a single reality in the film that you can point to and go, this is the reality and the rest of it is a dream. I'm not even sure I could, I would follow you down that road that far. Like if you say in reality, Rita and Betty's relationship goes sour, how do you know that that is the reality? I mean, if you, if you, it's very easy to just flip it around and go that the first half of the film is is the real is, mm. is the space of the real and so the second half could be the fantasy of it like the nightmare fantasy right? oh yeah
1: no and i agree i'm not i'm not specifically stating that that is reality and that is dream i'm just saying if you look at it that way like i think it's actually counterproductive to keep analyzing the movie i mean the beauty of lynch is the fact that he like i said earlier on he refuses to answer what his film means or at least what his interpretation of the movie is. So everybody's going to walk away with their own interpretation, which is fine. But I mean, like when I go on the internet and I see like a, a, I don't know, an article and it's like 8,000 words long and it's someone so convinced that they understand specifically what the movie is about, I just have to roll my eyes because I'm like, you're not David Lynch. Unless you actually got into his head, then okay, I can actually, you can actually state that this is specifically what the movie is about, but you're not David Lynch and you don't know. And we don't even know if David Lynch
4: knows.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he says he knows, but he might be people shitting us.
4: But the fact that he uh, I, I apparently is on a record for actually stating he will not answer specific questions. So who knows? Maybe he doesn't know. Yeah, but like,
0: that's thought- that's what I love about Lynch, though, is that he as as Rick already stated, like it, it kind of circumvents sort of accusations of pretentiousness because he never comes out and says, oh, this movie is trying to say this. Or you know he, he he never he never comes across as though he has some grand statement to make. He says, "Look, this is what it is. You take from it what you want, and I'm gonna go make an album now."
4: Right. <laughs> Which is where I might be wrong. I'm, I'm I'm open to admitting that I might be wrong when I said what I said earlier. So, but uh, I, I kind of like where the conversation has has gone, in particular to what uh, to what you were uh, referring to, Ricky, with regards to how the film. Uh, studies or comments on Hollywood. Uh, As I watched this film, uh, not for the first time, I think this morning was like the third time maybe that I've seen the film, although between each viewing session, there was like uh, many years. Um, I guess the two uh, interpretations among many supposedly that uh, I uh, not that I'm more comfortable with, but I guess that sort of work better in my brain would be that uh, there is, there is some, some dream, dream status uh, operating on some level, you know, what is the dream? What is real? Um, That's a little bit more fluid. It's a little bit more uh, difficult. It's not as tangible. I find what I find for me, this is strictly my own opinion. What I find is a bit more tangible, about Mulholland Drive, is that it is uh, something of a, of a satirical uh, vision, uh, commentary on how Hollywood operates, which is sort of a, l- a little bit maybe more in line with what you Ricky, were saying earlier. And I think that's probably what I enjoyed the most about the film. Uh, I don't, I don't think I've actually said if I like the movie or not. I guess of all the ones I've seen, this was the one I'd more, I'm, I can watch a little bit more often. I'm a little bit more comfortable with uh, Mulholland Drive. Uh, I enjoyed the scenes. Uh, I enjoyed the scenes that with with Justin Theroux, and all the uh, players uh, within the system, the producers, the 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 cappuccino not the cappuccino scene. I'm sorry, the espresso scene is is a very good scene. Not because it's funny, although it is that, but also because again, it's a very exaggerated, very uh, satirical. Uh, depiction of what might happen in these closed-door meetings. I mean, for all we know, maybe it actually happens like that. Hopefully not, but who knows. I think uh, those are the scenes I enjoyed uh, the most, far more than uh, the scenes uh, involving uh, sorry, Betty and, and Rita. Not that they were bad. I mean, hey, it's it's Laura Hiring and, and Naomi Watts, the fantastic actresses. Uh, and I should say that, if, if, for all the problems I have with David Lynch, for all the problems I have, He gets great performances out of his actors. I mean, and and we'll talk about Inland Empire in a few minutes. Great performances out of his actors. Even though I didn't like the Naomi Watts, uh, Laura Harring scenes as much, I just didn't find they had as much to say as as the other scenes involving the Hollywood system. Uh, I could still watch them because... Everybody just knocks it out of the park as so far as the acting is concerned.
1: We should also mention that this is Naomi Watts' first starring role, and I think the actress should be given credit for balancing the many levels of control needed to convince us, the audience, that she is like not just one person, like she's playing many, many roles. Um, But I'm not. A believer in the theory that the first half of the film is a dream and the second half is reality i think that's just way too easy and i can't accept that theory and that explanation but i'll just quickly say the reason why this movie works for me is because of the way it ends because i honestly found it heartbreaking and i don't know if i found it heartbreaking because of the music or the way it was shot, or just because I just love Naomi Watts and all two of her, or three of her characters so much. But, I mean, the last sequence, the fact that she actually kills herself, she commits suicide, I just, I don't know. I found it heartbreaking to me. This, this is why I think Mulholland Drive is my favorite David Lynch film. Cause I think it's the most emotionally satisfying for me as a viewer. Uh, yeah.
5: Um, I, I have to admit I'm one of the weird people where I actually think Inland Empire is my favorite movie. Um, and I'm sure I am alone in that <laughs> or one of very few, but, um, yeah, I Mahalan Drive. I, the ending is, yeah, the ending is interesting. I'm, I'm trying to think of what specifically to respond to Ricky. Um, I think maybe one thing I would just add to the to the mix about and Drive is um, one of the things that I find so fascinating about it is, like, again, going with this Hollywood, the question of whether or not it's taking Hollywood as its target. Um, I think maybe even more specifically than Hollywood, the question is, is the notion of acting as, a, as, as its target, um, the notion of being an actor. Because as we're talking about the great, great audition scene with uh, Naomi Watts, um, the thing that we would praise about an actor the most would be their ability to kind of lose their own personality to create another personality, right? To take into themselves mm-hmm. space for another personality. And so maybe the idea behind the film, maybe why it's so fun to kind of play this game of where where is reality, where are the people is that it's about actors. It's about people who maybe don't have an original personality. It's about people who thrive on being able to become somebody else, to be something different. And so, I don't know. I mean, and, and of course, maybe that's a negative thing for Lynch. Like maybe Lynch is is critiquing that, that need that we have for people to hollow themselves out, to become something else for our own entertainment.
0: Something you said sparked something in my brain, Kate, where there are dueling theories of how actors should operate, obviously. It, you know, not just... Not just- between method and other ideas but even within method and something that I think you can think about a lot while watching and Drive is is it your job as an actor to completely lose yourself in a totally alien role or is it your job to draw on your own experiences in order to find another way to portray something real and that's another way to think about sort of the film's relationship between possible dream possible reality possible act possible reality
1: I mean, I think we can all agree that she is a failed actress at one point in the film, regardless if it's a dream and or not a dream. It doesn't matter. I mean, at one point, her character is a failed actress. But I think what's really haunting her is also her destructive relationship with Camila. And the difference between Diane and Betty is that in one realm, in one world, fantasy, dream or not, her relationship is different with Camila in the sense that In the sense that Camellia loves her and is dependent on her. And in the other world, it's vice versa. She's dependent on her. I do believe that she had a relationship with the other woman who pops up midway through the film, who's living in her apartment, only it's not her apartment because she moved across to room like, or to apartment number 17. Like, I think that was like her previous relationship and they had broken off and she still regrets or has guilt about breaking up with her and then she later had a relationship with Camila but i think she also had a relationship with the director and so i think that her guilt like i mean i think it i think it is a movie about an actress dealing with her guilt and the fact that you know she's done all these horrible things and yet she doesn't get to the point uh of success where she wants to be and also i think um apart from like hiring a hitman to assassinate Rita she, like, she's just, she's feeling horrible about everything, everything that she's done in her whole, her whole entire life to the point where I think she sold out, like, be it sleeping with the director to try to get a role. And then she didn't even get the role to begin with. And or who knows? I mean, it's not a big secret that a lot of actors or a lot of people going to Hollywood do end up selling their bodies to try to get roles. And I don't buy specifically into the whole theory about prostitution. I don't know if you guys have ever had anyone tell you that this movie is about a prostitute. Uh, be. <laughs> Because she does have a doppelganger at one point at Winky's, who is a prostitute, and the prostitute does get into the blue van. I don't necessarily think it's that she was a prostitute. I just think it's her guilt. Once again, it's her uh, her subconscious. Uh, it's like the way she feels about how she sold herself to try to get like a specific role in a movie and and or whatnot, and now she's like feeling guilty about it.
5: <laughs> um, I was going to say, I mean, just to state the obvious here, of course you could, you could make the easy argument that all actresses are prostitutes, right? Somebody has Ooh. to say it because <laughs> the idea, like the idea behind prostitution, and of course I'm not saying this against a bad thing against either prostitutes or actresses, but the idea is that actors, actors sell their body for money, right? You physically sell your image for money. You sell access to your body for money. And so I think you could very easily make that equivalence through the film, even if you're not necessarily buying that it. it's explicitly about the act of prostituting yourself in L.A. Have you guys ever heard of the um,
1: the connection uh, that David Lynch has in his movies to the short story, An Occurrence at Old Creek Bridge?
0: Owl Creek Bridge, you mean?
1: Yeah. Didn't
0: I say Owl Creek Bridge? It sounded like you said Old Creek Bridge, but whatever. Okay. So you know about assignment. Yes. Okay, so basically, th- th- this is the same short story that inspired Jacob's Ladder as well as another movie that's not as good as Jacob's Ladder that I can't remember what it is.
1: Well, it inspired a lot of things. It, it actually became, it was adapted in 1963 to a short film which actually won the short film, the best short film at the Cannes Film Festival, and it won the best short film at the Academy Awards. And it later became an episode of The Twilight Zone. So I'll make this really short. But it's set during the American Civil War. And a man is condemned to death by hanging from Owl Creek Bridge. So when he is hanged, the rope actually breaks. And so the man falls into the river and he escapes. And while he's underwater, he frees his hands. He unties a rope from his neck. And he goes on this, like, journey. How should I explain this? Once he, he reaches the surface of the water, he realizes his senses are, like, superhuman. And he begins, no, like, listen, hear me out. He begins experiencing like strange psychological events. And then ultimately he ends up back home and he ends up outside of his house and he sees his wife standing outside of his house, waiting for him. And as he runs forward to reach her, he suddenly feels a searing pain in his neck and a white light flashes and everything goes black. So basically it's revealed that the man never actually escaped at all. And he imagined the whole entire third part of the story right before he died. And so many filmmakers have been inspired and influenced by this short story ever since it was published. And apparently many, many David Lynch movies specifically Mulholland drive uh, are said to be uh, influenced by the specific story. So some people look at it like when she does commit suicide, it's, the images that she has right before she dies. And most of those images have something to do with her guilt and everything that she's done
0: horribly wrong in her past. I'm dumbfounded. <laughs> I'm speechless. <laughs> uh, Edgar, have you changed your mind about Lynch yet? Have we beaten you into submission?
4: Well, I'll give Lynch uh, another point. Uh, he, he has, unfortunately... I don't know about what you'll have to say about Inland Empire. I think, unfortunately, what I'm about to say is not as present present in the second movie we'll review. But he has a pretty good sense of humor. Uh, he he knows how to construct an entertaining scene. Uh, the 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 espresso scene, uh, the scene when uh, Justin Theroux uh, goes back to his home and discovers discovers that his wife is cheating on him. Essentially, every scene with Justin Theroux is pretty darn good in this film. The cowboy scene, you know, <laughs> cowboy? Why? Are you? you gotta be kidding me, you know? Great stuff, great stuff. I love those scenes. I, I truly, truly love those scenes because I felt like they were a reprieve from maybe the things that I didn't like as much. So he's got great sense of humor.
2: Well now, here's a man who wants to get right down to it. Kinda anxious to get to it, are you? Whatever. Man's attitude. Man's attitude goes some ways the way his life will be. Is that something you might agree with? Sure. Now, did you answer because that's what you thought I wanted to hear? Or did you think about what I said and answer because you truly believe that to be right? I agree with what you said. Truly. what I say? that a man's attitude determines to a large extent how his life will be. So, since you agree, you must be a person who does not care about the good life. How's that? Well, stop for a little second. Think about it. Can you do that for me? (laughs) Okay. I'm thinking. No, you're not thinking. You're too busy being a smart aleck to be thinking. Now I want you to think and stop being a smart aleck. Can you try that for me? Look, where's this going? What do you want me to do? There's sometimes a buggy. How many drivers does a buggy have? One. So let's just say I'm driving this buggy. And if you fix your attitude, you can ride along with me.
0: I mean, we we get that that bizarre sequence with the the hitmen, yeah. um, in the office. The black book. Um, scene. Oh,
4: that is a good scene. That is yeah. a good scene.
0: Oh, wait, are, you,
1: are, are you referring to the black book sequence?
0: Yeah. 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 Uh, does anyone else kind of take that as his parody of Tarantino in some strange way?
1: No, not at all. I read that no? somewhere on the internet, and I totally don't buy it at all. I mean. No, he's been doing stuff like that since early on in his career. Um, but, you know, like, I just want to say one thing, though. Um, Mulholland Drive, um, I mean, what if, like, none of it is actually a waking moment? What if the whole entire <laughs> thing is dreams? Is what, what is
0: what is a movie if not a dream, Rick?
1: And like, and, like, and then, well, no. And the only reason maybe the movie ends is because there's a theory that if you die in your dream, then you actually die in your in real life. And because she commits suicide in her dreams, therefore she
4: actually dies. You're getting movies confused—that's uh, *Nightmare on Elm Street* or *Inception*. <laughs>
5: <laughs> um, I, before we before we move on to another movie, though, Simon, I have to throw one thing in here because I'm amazed no one else has brought it up yet. We have to talk about what is one of the greatest movie sequences. If not of all time, at least of the last decade, which is the Club Silencio sequence. I mean, holy crap, it's the most amazing <laughs> sequence. And and I wanted to bring it up as like another way into the film, which is the idea that the movie is really ultimately a critique of of cynophilia, like of the love of the love of watching absence, the love of something that isn't there. You know, like the way that we've been talking about the the Naomi Watts character is somebody who may or may not even be there at all. Ultimately, it's the same thing about we're sitting in a theater watching these amazing, beautiful things that aren't there. So what's wrong with us?
1: No, uh, I mean, that to me is one of the greatest sequences ever. Like, just his focus on sound as opposed to image, which is something that David Lynch is a master of. um, To me, that scene is extraordinary. And the the fact that we have this Spanish rendition of a Roy Orbison tune is just brilliant. And even Angelo... Battle Manti, yeah. his dread-inducing synth score is ab- absolutely incredible in this movie. It's like Lynch knows how to have the sound evoke specific emotions and reactions from his audience, and I just love that sequence. Like, I mean, everything in this movie, the whole in production value-wise, it's just absolutely. Like top notch, pitch perfect. Peter Deming's fine cinematography, the great production designed by Jack Fisk, who he usually works with. Um, and I love even like the cowboy sequence, like uh, who, by the way, is played by a movie producer. But I, I also noticed like they shave off his eyebrows and. The it's just so unique and it's so like David Lynch and there's no one else like David Lynch and I love the the drones and high pitched sounds of the score and I love the jittery camera work like whenever it seems like the actress might possibly wake up if you think it's actually a dream sequence. Yeah, and also in that in that sequence at the nightclub, the two girls they basically start crying. And a lot of people who do believe like, you know, the, the, the overall theory of the movie is that, like I said, I don't buy it, but like the, the first, like two acts is a dream. And the last act is reality. And right before the last act begins, they're at the nightclub and they start, they start crying. It's like, it's it's like as if they're crying because they know, or she knows that she's about to wake up and she's about to wake up from her fantasy Enter reality. And she doesn't want to face reality because David Lynch does a lot with color. And, I mean, the color of blue is present throughout the whole entire film, right? I mean, f- from the key to the box, but specifically in that sequence at the nightclub, because the magician himself disappears in a cloud of blue smoke and blue lightning. Yeah, and the lady uh, appears wearing a blue wig. And so it's sort of like the, uh, the color blue represents... I don't know if it's a doorway or a transition from one place to the next place. And it could be from reality to fantasy into a dream world and into another dream. Who knows? But the color blue is specifically a symbol representing a transition for the main character. And I mean, the, the way he uses colors in general, I mean, from the way she dresses at early on in the film when she's Betty you know, she usually wears, like, pink and white and whatnot, and then when she, like, later on in the film, when we find out that Betty is Diane, that are the same person, she wears colors more similar to what Camille is wearing, so she wears a lot of reds and a lot of blacks, and her, her whole outfit just totally changes. Everything about the film, like, I don't think that, I think that David Lynch, like, everything that he puts in his movies, he's so, so meticulous. Like, I think the attention to detail is unreal i think everything is done purposely from the color of someone's t-shirt to whatever music kicks in in the background to the name of uh, a character just it's just amazing this movie it's like all his movies are amazing i don't think i've ever seen a bad david lynch movie
0: but you know i I have to slightly object to something you just said where I, i yes i i agree that he's meticulous but to sort of um, split the difference between several points of view here. I don't think he always has a concrete idea of of of, of every detail. I, th- I think he's a um, uh, contrary to what Edgar said many many moons ago. Um, I <clears> don't <throat> think he contrives his weirdness. I think he's an incredibly intuitive, mm-hmm. uh, not just filmmaker but artist. I feel like all of his various art forms the they're they're all very coherent. They're all very sort of they're all Lynchian. He's never out of character in terms of the art he makes, and. You know, you can say you can have an interpretation for why there's so much blue, or why there's a uh, why there's a street name that that shows up in both Twin Peaks and and uh, and Mulholland Drive, et etc., et cetera. Um, But I'm not sure that there's any one. Uh, I- I'm not. I'm not sure that he has a single concrete, satisfying significant idea in mind for those details and i'm fine with that
4: i think maybe uh what he does do again i'm sort of i wouldn't say you guys are winning me over but you know i I don't i don't hate david lynch films i mean but uh, maybe one thing he does do and perhaps successfully is maybe go for those uh, in very very different ways than most directors but maybe what he does do and succeeds at is, is try to get some sort of gut emotional response with the colors or with the details. Uh, Ricky, you mentioned the details, and and Simon, you mentioned the colors as well. He might not have a definite plan, but he does have an idea of what he wants to do. And it's it's a very artistic vision, and it'll get some sort of an emotional response. I mean, there must be, you know, probably not a surprise to you three, the Silencio club scene flew over my head, but all three of you absolutely love it you know there must be a reason for that it must be cuz it it got you at a sort of that level. it's a artistic artistically inclined scene and maybe that's that is his plan maybe it's uh, i'm going he does have a plan but it's a loose plan and he goes for he, 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 an emotional response but in a completely different direction than most uh, other um, producers writers actors and, and directors in hollywood would I, i'll give him that much i'll give him that much
5: i, uh, I was just going to say that i think edgar has hit on possibly the most um important thing when you're talking about lynch, which is the notion of, of affect. Like the idea I'm not sure how common an idea that is, but the idea of of like creating an effective response in the spectator that's not not even necessarily like as um easily quantifiable as emotion. Like not not to say, you know, mm-hmm. oh I Happy or sad or whatever. Right. When when you have these responses to a film that are that are physical, like they're they're almost pre-emotion, like they're they're before you can even put a name on them. Like right. it's easier to talk about this in *Inland Empire* because I think *Inland Empire* does it even more so. But like in the *Club Silencio* sequence, when you have like Ricky said, this amazing soundtrack, this amazing kind of the the vibration, the um, mentee, like strange noises that are happening all the time in the film. It, Lynch is a master at making you respond to the film before you're even aware that you're responding like it's not a conscious response it's a physical response that kind of undoes your brain a little bit in these movies which is why i love them so much well i think it has a
1: lot honestly to do with the sound design because uh he works really closely closely with a sound designer and of course clearly lynch understands music and i think that uh especially if you see this movie with a good sound system and or in a theater the sound it's just like watching a horror film the sound really does sort of like Evoke some kind of emotion in you without you actually realizing it. But I mean, I totally disagree with you, Simon. I'm sorry. Maybe David Lynch w- won't say specifically where the story is going or how everything connects. And maybe he doesn't actually specifically have answers. But when it comes to his direction, I think everything is done for a reason. And I would totally disagree with everything he's saying. And that is why, that is why he's an auteur. And, I mean, if you look at his whole entire filmo- uh, filmography, I mean, the idea, for example, that there's always a, a detective in a, in a David Lynch movie. There's always a mystery man. Uh, There's always someone playing detective, even if they're not a detective. In this case, it's the two girls. Um, I I mean, there's the character known as the cowboy who sets the rules of the universe, be it a fantasy and or a dream and or not. And he actually at one point has that line where he says, hey, pretty girl, time to wake up. You see that throughout every single one of David Lynch's hard films, specifically in Twin Peaks. There's the idea of the interior mob which I guess we can talk about with Inland Empire, but the idea of also the outsider, because in many Lynch films, the main characters, specifically the women, they find themselves in a situation where they're confronted by a gang of characters. It's like a mob or an an inner circle of friends, but they're not part of the clique. And so they feel like the outsider and those people sort of are perceived in, in a way where they are a danger for the main character. And you see it in this movie too, Betty slash Diane, same person, right? She clearly feels alienated and you see it at the dinner sequence and the dinner sequence is like the crucial part of the movie because at the dinner sequence, she's clearly the outsider. She's clearly the failed actress. She discovers that Camelia is also having an affair possibly with another woman, but she knows she's also having an affair with the Hollywood director. She loves Camelia. She's also dependent on her. And now she discovers that, she's going to get married to the director, and that's when her world completely crumbles around her. I mean, even John Merrick, the elephant man, I mean, he's made a spectacle before the mobs of people, and he's tormented. Uh, in Blue Velvet, Jeffrey finds himself trapped in a night with Frank Booth and his gang. It's present in every single one of his films. Think of Laura and Donna in Twin Peaks when they go to the nightclub. Um, I mean, the and I'm sorry, the colors... The camera sequences, the specific lenses he chooses, it's all there for a specific reason. Um, and even like the old couple, like the old couple, we see them at the beginning of the movie during the jitterbuck uh, contest. We see them at the airport and we see them towards the end of the film. And to me, the old couple, it could be their parent, her parents. It could be her grandparents. It doesn't matter. It's, it's more like it's an idea of. People who are really nice to you and they laugh at you behind your face because she's a really insecure person. And it's also the idea that they could be the older couple, parents or whatnot, and she feels like she let them down. Like she went to Hollywood to be to like pursue her dream of be, becoming an actress and she did things that they would not be proud of. So, I I don't know, man.
0: Can I- the uh, You know, I we, we really need to get to Inland Empire, but I will say that I don't necessarily disagree with you that I, I, you know, when you say that all these things are there for a specific reason. I just think that the reason is that Lynch likes them and thinks they're cool. Like, uh, to, to, as a segue into Inland Empire, the reason the movie is called Inland Empire is because, according to him, he thought inland was a good word, and he thought empire was a good word. <laughs> like... That's literally the, the level that he Simon, operates on some of the time.
4: Simon, Simon, you're you're very slowly but surely sounding like what I did at, at earlier in this review. Yeah, exactly. Except, ex- except
0: that I think it's great and you right. think
4: it's dumb. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair
5: enough. I have, I have <laughs> also, though, also though, maybe like even just to uh, uh, add another shade of nuance to it, maybe it's not just that he likes them, but that he feels like he's operating on something that is sort of pre-conscious. That it's not that he likes it or dislikes it, it's that it's that his directorial approach is that. I feel that the color blue should be in this sequence. I don't really need to have a conscious like idea as to how that fits into the narrative or the logic of the world. I just think the color blue should be here, but, and then that's why we see like patterns throughout his filmmaking that are not that are what he would maybe argue like subconscious or whatever. But they're they're. I agree. I think both of you guys haven't read. Oh, just...
1: but 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 Kate, but Kate, but Kate, you use the word pattern. So there is a pattern. That's my point. It, it is it's not like he he made the cow blue and it's the only blue object in the movie. And then, therefore, people come up with these crazy theories. Like, there's a specific pattern that we can follow. I'm going to tell you the craziest theory that I've read online, and I love it. Um, did you guys ever hear about the Lincoln Connection? Okay, this is this is awesome. Okay, so Diane's fantasy begins. Like, the movie begins with um, an attempted assassination of Rita, okay? If you even think it's a fantasy or dream, whatever. The movie begins with the attempted assassination of Rita, right? And we find out that uh, her left ear is wounded because the the detectives find a pearl earring that was torn off. They find it on the ground and full of blood, right? So Lincoln was shot right behind his left ear and the gun that he was... (laughs) Wait, wait. And the gun that was used to shoot Lincoln had a white pearl handle. But Rita, okay, was driving in the limousine that was a Lincoln. But this Lincoln theory stretches... (laughs) This is amazing. This Lincoln theory stretches throughout all of David Lynch's movies. Like If you think about Blue Velvet, um, they go to Lincoln Street, which that road continuously plays a key role in the movie. Frank Booth drives a black Ford, and this is a clear connection to the fact that Lincoln was killed by John Wilkes Booth at Ford's Theater. (laughs) It's <laughs> it, and 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 the movie opens up with uh, uh, uh what's his face discovering the severed ear and Frank Booth cuts the ear off of one of his victims. I mean, this is the kind of thing where David Lynch will put these things in his movie. I don't think they mean anything, but that's uh, an example of something that he'll put in his movie just because hey, it's fun to do, and I'm sure he gets a kick out of people like you know uncovering these like small hints and clues and then writing up these like 800 page like essays of what that means, but when it comes to like the color schemes and the music and the sound design and everything else that I talked about prior, I think it's done purposely for a reason to try try to, if not tell a specific, like traditional story to try to at least have the majority of the audience walk away with some understanding of what it is that he's trying to say. If he's trying to say anything. The
0: last thing I want to say about Mulholland drive and it's really my only criticism is I kind of feel bad that it didn't get to be a TV series because how awesome would it have been to have 15, 20, 50 hours of this?
1: Oh, my God. But, but that's why I just... thats <laughs> The only thing I want to do right now is go back and watch uh, Twin Peaks. You know, last two things I'll say. Um, I've seen Mulholland Drive like five times. I did notice something for the first time today. There is uh, a, specific, a specific shot in which it looks like it's a homage to... Uh, Bergman's persona and it's when the two of them are in bed together and they get really close and then of course there's the um, the sequence which is very reminiscent to Vertigo uh, you know what I'm talking about? Rita turns herself into like a blonde and she's like a, basically like a doppelganger for Betty
5: yeah there's a Vertigo I think there's a Vertigo illusion in um, Inland Empire as well but I think I may be stretching that a bit I don't know
0: <laughs> alright we we gotta move on folks we, we've gone on one hour about one film so uh hopefully we're not going to do that again in a minute but we'll see uh so the uh, movie's called Mulholland Drive if you haven't seen it you're dumb uh he we got to move on so we're going to hear a uh clip and some music when we come back we're going to talk Inland Empire you are listening to Sound On Sight the official podcast of soundonsight.org
2: I want you to go back to work tomorrow you are recasting the lead actress anyway audition many girls for the part When you see the girl that was shown to you earlier today, you will say, this is the girl. The rest of the cast can stay. That's up to you. But that lead girl is not up to you. Now you will see me one more time if you do good. You'll see me two more times if you do bad. Good night.
3: Yo estaba bien por un tiempo volviendo a soir. Luego anoche te vi tu mano me tocó, y el saludo. me habla muy bien y tú sin saber que he estado llorando por tu amor, llorando por tu amor. send Yo estoy llorando. Yo que pensé que te olvidé, pero es verdad, es la verdad. Que te quiero aún más, mucho más que ayer. Dime tú qué puedo hacer me care.